Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, Episode 7, Gaul and Spain. Okay, so we need to talk a little about the podcast first. When I decided to take on the History of Byzantium, I really wanted to preserve the structure and style of the History of Rome. I still hope one day to be able to look on my computer and know that there is a story in MP3 files that runs all the way from Romulus and Remus to Constantine XI with a consistent narrative. However, I found it hard to replicate certain things that Mike Duncan did. The hardest is to match his schedule, as my day job and my reviews at the TVCritic.org already take up so much time. But allied to this is the difficulty of producing episodes which last neatly between 20 and 30 minutes. It's actually much harder than you think to fit a consumable part of the story into that time frame. It's just another reason why the history of Rome was so amazing. These two problems have conspired this week as I go away on Thursday and so wouldn't be able to release the podcast on Sunday as promised nor, as I have found, would I be able to include everything I wanted to in it. I conceived this episode as a quick look around the former western provinces of the empire to catch you up on what the rest of the Mediterranean world was doing while Zeno and Anastasius were putting the east back on its feet. However, different parts of the west need more attention than others, and I won't be able to fit it all into one episode. Hence, this week's episode will only cover Gaul and Spain and may be shorter than I would ideally like. Of course, one solution to both the schedule and the narrative problems would be just to release an episode of any old length as soon as it's complete. However, I really want to avoid that becoming the norm, because I think a half-hour podcast is a really good length, and I think you can lose the narrative flow by breaking it up into much smaller installments. Maybe you guys can give me some feedback on that. Your feedback about the podcast has been incredibly helpful so far. Many of you seem to want to know more about the daily life of ordinary people, and that will take a lot of reading on my part, and hence more scheduling difficulties. So bear with me. Some of you have also expressed the difficulty you've had with lots of names and obscure geography, and I'm afraid today's podcast may have some more of that. I hope that you will trust me with how I'm telling the story. I know that Vitalian's revolt against Anastasius may seem obscure, but I wouldn't include anything that wasn't giving you important information. The fact that Vitalian led a revolt, at least publicly based on the emperor's religious beliefs, is a major change for an empire which once let anyone believe whatever they wanted. 
It tells us a lot about what people in Byzantium were passionate about and the changing basis of imperial legitimacy. With that in mind, keep faith with me today as I tell you about people in lands thousands of miles away from Constantinople. I only include information which I think is pertinent to our story and will help you understand a world that is in many ways very different to our own. So, with that out of the way, we now begin a series of episodes where we will take a look around the Byzantine Empire and its surroundings to see what has changed since the history of Rome last took around in the mid-2nd century. It's worth adding that the history of Rome did also take a fairly thorough look around during the 280s when Diocletian tried to reform the empire and a lot of what has changed was put in place then, but we'll get to that. We need to get a sense of what the Mediterranean world looks and feels like now that we've reached the 6th century. We'll begin this exploration with the former Roman provinces, which slipped from imperial control in the 5th century. When Justinian gets his hands on Anastasius's treasure reserve, he will attempt to take back what was lost, and so we need to know what kind of world we'll be dealing with. It's also worth having a look around because the various German-run kingdoms are the empire's neighbours now, and so to understand the geopolitical context which the emperors were operating in, we need to see who lives next door. The final point to make before we begin is that the vast majority of people living in those kingdoms thought of themselves as Romans. Their ancestors had all lived in the empire and knew nothing but the empire until the Germans came flooding over the borders. Their relationship with the surviving eastern half of the empire is something we need to touch on. Let's begin in the northwest of Europe, where the rainy island of Britain fell from imperial control around 410 and plays little part in the story of Byzantium for obvious reasons. Fortunately for you, both the History of England podcast and the British History podcast cover what happened next, so go check them out. Across the channel in what is now France, the former Roman provinces of Gaul had undergone quite the political transformation in the century between the major crossing of Germans into the empire in 406 and the reign of Anastasius in the 510s. You'll recall that on New Year's Eve 406, probably trying to move away from the growing menace of the Huns, whole tribes of Vandals, Alans, Marcomane and Quadi crossed the frozen Rhine and set off across Gaul. The results of this invasion transformed the empire, and we'll deal shortly with what all those tribes did next. However, in the wake of their crossing, there were no imperial troops manning the river to stop more Germans from crossing the Rhine behind them and settling on Roman lands. Within a few years, the Rhine was no longer an effective frontier, with the Franks, Burgundians and Alamanni settling on both sides of the river. This was the last thing on the imperial authorities' minds, though, as the various tribes pillaged their way across Gaul and travelled into Spain. You'll recall that at this same time, the Visigoths had arrived in southern Gaul. The Visigoths, meaning Western Goths, are so called by historians because they ended up in the West. They had started in the east, and it was they who crushed Valens's army at Adrianople in 378 and sacked Rome under Alaric in 410. 
the imperial authorities had refused to give the Goths a permanent homeland, leading to the uneasy situation for both sides, which had led the Goths to wander the empire and end up in Gaul. With the Vandals, Alans, Marcomanni, and Cordae trying to settle in Spain, a deal was finally struck. The Visigoths would crush the marauding Germans, and in exchange be given permanent settlement in Aquitaine. This they promptly did, and so modern Bordeaux and most of the Atlantic coast of France became the home of the Goths. During this period of tumult, the Romans had to make accommodations with the Franks and confirm their acquisitions in the north. They also resettled the Burgundians in modern Savoy, on the border between France, Italy and Switzerland, after Aetius had crushed them in battle. This was largely the situation as the empire went through its death throes in the 460s and 470s. The Visigoths took advantage of the crumbling authority of the emperors and enlarged their share of Gaul, pushing north towards Poitiers and east toward Lyon. They also conquered most of Spain, which we will get to in a minute. As I mentioned back in episode 3, local Roman landowners tried to keep control of the areas of Gaul where the Germans were weakest. The resistance was strongest in the northwest, where some Roman Britons crossed the water to continue their lifestyle in Brittany, and in the lands around modern Paris and Orléans, where Siagrius ruled as the so-called King of the Romans until 487. In that year, their territory was annexed by the people who would eventually turn Gaul into France, the Franks. Some Franks had been allowed to settle within the empire as federate allies way back during the reign of Julian the Apostate in the 4th century. And even by the 450s, they were still divided into independent kingdoms, with bases at Cologne, Tournai, Le Mans and Cambrai. The kings of Tournai would eventually subdue their neighbours and establish a dominant Frankish monarchy under King Childeric. It was his son Clovis who proved to be the kind of vigorous monarch who would begin serious Frankish expansion. It was Clovis who defeated Siagrius in 487 and would then turn on his neighbours the Alamanni, bringing them under his authority in 496. Next, he turned his attention to the main challenge to Frankish dominance in Gaul, the Visigoths. As we shall see in a moment, much of Visigothic strength had moved to Spain by this time, and the forces at the disposal of Alaric II were not enough to hold back the full might of the Franks. The decisive battle took place at Voye, modern Vienne, in 507. Alaric himself was killed in the fighting, and the Franks gobbled up most of Aquitaine. Clovis died in 511, and as was Frankish custom, his domains were split between his surviving sons, of which there were four. Technically, the Frankish realm was still one entity, but naturally that didn't stop the new kings from feuding and killing one another. However, this warfare did not destroy Frankish hegemony, and the constant militarism meant that by the time of Anastasius' death, Clovis's remaining sons were already eyeing the remaining Gothic possessions along the south coast and the Burgundian kingdom in the southeast with greedy eyes. The fact that the Franks now dominated most of what is today France is of course an important historical development. More significant than that though, and particularly for the Byzantines, is what made the Franks different from the other Germanic peoples. Unlike the Goths and the Vandals, 
the Franks had not been converted to Christianity. During the centuries of border conflict with the Romans, the Germans had been exposed to all sorts of Roman ideas, and naturally Christian clergy had gone out converting amongst the barbarians. The Vandals and Goths had been converted to the Arian form of Christianity, the important heresy within Arianism being that Jesus was considered subordinate to God within the Trinity. This, of course, makes Arianism the theological opposite of Monophysitism. The Romans had purged this particular heresy out of their own lands, but now it returned in the churches of their conquerors. The Franks, however, remained unabashedly pagan until 496. Soon after his victory over the Alamanni, King Clovis converted to Catholic Christianity. Clovis had married the Burgundian princess Clotilde, who was a Catholic and lobbied hard for her husband to convert. Although it may have caused tensions with other Franks at the time, many followed in their leader's wake and converted too which had important consequences for the integration of the Franks within the Gallo-Roman population that they ruled over. Across the West, the Roman elites and the people who worked their land had to make deals with their new barbarian masters. If you were a landowner in Gaul, there wasn't a lot of point clinging to imperial authority once a Gothic or Burgundian army moved in down the road. Your land was here, and to protect it, you needed to get on with the men carrying the swords. Once Clovis became an adherent of the one true faith, life in Gaul began to change. At the top, the landowning Romans warmed to a man they now had more in common with, and some of them could now serve him directly as his priest or his bishop. Even more significantly, at a local level, the Gallo-Romans and their German overlords could now go to the same church on a Sunday and begin to find the common ground that would allow them to integrate more fully as one people. That was a gradual process, of course. In the short term, though, when Clovis announced his intention to go to war with the Arian Visigoths, he received strong support from the Catholic Romans. When victory was achieved, the Emperor Anastasius awarded Clovis the title of Consul, as reward for ridding nominally Roman lands of their heretical Visigothic rulers. This is an important point for the future of the Byzantines. There was very little that Clovis and Anastasius' regimes practically had in common. But the idea that two peoples who both held, quote, correct Christian faith should cooperate with one another was coming to be seen as an important factor in diplomatic cooperation. We'll leave France there and move south into Spain and Portugal, which of course knew no such distinction during Roman times. As I mentioned before, the Vandals, Alans, Marcomanni and Quadi broke through the Rhine defences in 406 and headed south. After looting the wealth of Gaul, they headed to Spain, where they tried to settle down. The Romans called in the Visigoths to break up their holdings, which they duly did, However, the Visigoths didn't wipe out the Germans in Spain, they merely broke their immediate hold on Roman land. Many of them fled to the northwest corner of the peninsula, where the mountainous country made trekking them down unprofitable. 
In 429, though, what remained of the Vandals and Alans crossed the Straits of Gibraltar and settled in Africa, which we will get to next time. The Marcomanni and Cordae stayed behind, though, and slowly regrew their power. Collectively known as the Suevi, they controlled almost half the Iberian Peninsula by the 450s when the Emperor Majorian campaigned successfully against them. A little time after, in 453, the new Western Emperor Avitus encouraged the Visigoths back into Spain. He asked Theodoric II to attack the Suevi for him, which he did in a series of campaigns up to 466. But then Theodoric was killed by his brother Euric, who, seeing the failing grasp of the Romans, took matters into his own hands. He relieved the Romans of their last province in Spain in 472, and then pushed the Suevi back to their northwest corner, while simultaneously expanding Visigothic holdings in Gaul. But it was all too much, even for the Goths to hold, and Euric's son Alaric II was killed, as we have seen, in battle with the Franks in 507. The man who stepped in to prevent the Franks from seizing all of France was Theodoric the Great. Yes, that Theodoric, the one who Zeno persuaded to head to Italy in 488. We will get to what Theodoric has been up to next episode, but for now the important thing to know is the weakness of Visigothic rule in Spain, which draws a contrast with the vigorous rule of the Franks. Despite the reduction of their holdings in Gaul, the Visigoths still saw themselves as based there, rather than in Spain. The capital of the Visigothic kingdom remained in Narbonne, which lies about halfway between modern Marseille and Toulouse. This meant in practice that Gothic landowners deep in the south of Spain saw very little of their king. He was, after all, three mountain ranges away. This mountainous interior of Spain meant that communities across the peninsula could live relatively independently from central Gothic control. Taxation varied greatly during this time, with the more Romanized Mediterranean coast being the most easily controlled area. Then there is the issue of Visigothic religious belief. The Goths protected their Aryan faith and saw it as part of their identity as a conquering people. To the Catholic Romano-Iberians, this remained heresy, and so increased the gap between ruling foreign elite and ruled native people. It's hard to judge what the native Romans saw as their future during this time. Rulers like Zeno and Anastasius would have seemed very distant and foreign to people living in Toledo or Toulouse. They probably reconciled themselves to their new realities quicker than those in Italy and Africa, who were geographically and politically closer to the Byzantines. The response of the Roman elites varied from place to place and situation to situation, of course. But we see an interesting example of the changing roles of Romans in the life of Sidonius Apollinaris, one of our chief sources for the period, because many of his letters have survived. Sidonius was born around 430. His father was prefect of Gaul under the Emperor Valentinian III, and so Sidonius was given a first-rate education. He married the daughter of the Emperor Anthemius and was active in politics, becoming urban prefect of Rome in 468. 
we can see from his letters how some Romans responded to the changing imperial situation. He was initially in favour of cooperating with the Visigoths against the encroachment of other barbarians into Gaul. Over time, though, he begins to distrust them and rails against the imperial authorities for abandoning his home, the area of modern Lyon and Clermont, to the Goths. Eventually, he turned to the church and became Bishop of Auvergne and continued to tend to his flock and write letters and poems under the new Gothic regime. Sidonius died in 489 and may not have entirely believed that the imperial dream was dead. However, his new ecclesiastical career was a route many in his position also took as the civilian career path the empire would have offered had now gone. The alternative to the church was the military, and we find Sidonius's son fighting for the Visigoths and his grandson working for the Franks. For Romans in the far west, the idea that the empire was really gone, and they needed to come to terms and perhaps find employment with their new barbarian overlords, came quicker than it did to those living further east. This episode is obviously available earlier than I promised, but I can only guarantee that the next one will be available two weeks from this coming Sunday. In that podcast, we'll take a look at the developments in Italy and Africa and see how both the native populations and the new ruling elites are getting along. Thanks again to all of you for listening and especially for your helpful feedback at Facebook, iTunes and the History of Byzantium. WordPress.com.